Hi there. We're doing something completely different today. We're going to cover Matthew Perry's memoir, which is called Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. We're covering that because that is a very inspirational story in our field of addiction medicine. Matthew Perry is one of the... I don't know if he was a reluctant pioneer in the sense that he was exposed, I guess, a little bit early in the 90s about, you know, when he, uh, his first foray into rehab. Ever since then, he's been such a tireless advocate for treating people with substance use concerns as human beings. For me, somebody who makes their living telling their own story, he has been a real inspiration. We're going to look at whether this guy has gotten good addiction care. He's obviously somebody who has a lot of resources and his own perspective is that he kind of didn't. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much. So this week, um, I brought forward Matthew Perry's book to discuss Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. And the Big Terrible Thing? The Big Terrible Thing, yeah. And uh, what, what made you, what made you uh, pick this book? I mean, there's so many uh, memoirs out there. There's uh, so many stories about uh, substances, substance use. What, what pulled you towards uh, this one? Um, I guess, it, you know, there was a lot of parallels. I mean, he's the, the same age as I am. When I was struggling with my addiction, he, he'd come out into the media. Well, he was one of the first ones, right? Yeah. Like, we, we usually don't hear about all these celebrities and their addictions. Right. It's usually in the shadows, right? Uh, but this was public. Yeah. Yes, public. Whether he yeah, chose, in the 90s, yeah. Whether he chose to or didn't, it, it, it was pulled into the into the public realm. Yeah. I feel for him, and I think he's a, a really brave guy. No, it is it is a really brave one, right? Because uh, I, I I like reading memoirs. I like hearing people's versions of uh, their life and their uh, their story. And usually, I, I look for lessons, right? I look for lessons of strength, resilience, all that stuff. And and this one was, I mean, I was nervous about going through because I knew it'd be sad, and uh, and it's raw, right? And it, it just feels like this is a train of thought of of uh, someone, right? He's not trying to present himself in a in a good light, you know. He's really almost uh, putting a magnifying glass at uh, his uh, his deficits. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very uh, raw and uh, it feels very authentic. In that way, it, it was hard to read for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I felt the same way. Like, uh, you know, it's one of those things, you know, when, when, when I'm at work, uh, I, I'm more, it's more about having the person speak in the back of my mind. I'm thinking like uh, diagnosis and recommendations and what the person wants and, uh, and how to bring them on board with some things that might, might be able to help them or get them to consider it. When, when I go through uh, memoirs or um, autobiographies or uh, documentaries, uh, I just feel the emotions intensely, right? Uh, and it's, uh, it's almost like you, you go on that roller coaster with the, uh, the person, right? And so... For sure. You know, and so it, uh, it, was, uh, it was a bit... But I mean, that's, that's me as a uh, clinician, right? And for you, it would be different because uh, with a lot of substance use, the stories are parallel. Like th there's a lot of like, whether it's a relapse, or whether it's uh, the detox or whether it's the self-loathing or whether it's the uh, uh, unhappiness with others or whether it's the blaming yourself. Like it's just, there, there's so many parallels in uh, the story. I mean, every, every person is unique, right? So just like with, with depression or, or like any story is so unique, you can't really generalize. Um, at the same time, there's certain things that will speak to us because they, they, they speak to the, the human condition, right? Absolutely. And I mean, even as a, so, you know, I kind of have a, a two lenses from it. One kind of the lived experience lens and the other is sort of the armchair clinician saying, oh my gosh, what did they do here? What did they do there? Right. And that, you know, and again, we're listening to, uh, you know, his, 
his his lens of this, his experience, it's his story. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and um, but you know, there's a lot of things in there that, uh, quite frankly, would be you know kind of questionable from you know kind of classic training. Yeah, and then this is where where it does get tricky, right? Because who are we and where are we? We're in uh, Canada. Yep. We're it's a 2023. Yes. Right, and and the world of addiction medicine is transforming rapidly. Yes. Right, it's absolutely is transforming rapidly. But there are a couple of things in there that if uh, someone was to hear it and take it as a gospel, and not uh, do their own research or reach out to a healthcare provider and they follow it uh, blindly, uh, it could lead to problems and it might. Um, they might not be exposed to a treatment that could work. All right, so why don't we, uh, we've, got, we've selected eight clips from uh, Matthew's book. By this point, I knew more about drug addiction and alcoholism than any of the coaches and most of the doctors I encountered at these facilities. I, I, I see a lot of people that could teach the sessions that I teach, right? So when I run a group uh, counseling uh, session, on um, either to uh, build up motivation, reviewing people's values, talking about behavior change, uh, uh, figuring out triggers, long-term consequences, the function of use. Um, we have patients, uh, clients, uh, whatever the, the term is of the, of the day, uh, that could actually teach the uh, sessions. Sure. And, and the challenge is that um, they still haven't mastered how to apply those skills and that knowledge. And, and they also haven't mastered it uh, when the stakes are high, right. right? And so when it's cool and calm like me and you are talking right now, they may be able to describe the things and do the things that are necessary. But when it's something that you care about that goes deep into your soul, it's, it's harder to, uh, to do that. And so for me, when someone makes a statement, I actually validate them on it, right? Because I've worked with so many people that could actually teach this. I've worked with people that have been in recovery for so many years, and they've coached all these people through stuff. I've worked with um, people that are therapists, right? That, mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the relapse comes and all that kind of stuff. And so when you, when you work with somebody who knows a lot, is competent, is uh, capable, you can't just tell them what they need to do. Like unless they, they trust you, unless they believe in you, unless they, they, you have a long history where uh, they know you've got their, their back. Mm -hmm. And so you need to make sure as a counselor or a therapist that they know that you see their value. They know you see their intelligence, their competence, their capabilities. They know you have compassion for the suffering that they've, uh, they've been through. Mm -hmm. And then once they have that experience, there's a chance they may be able to hear your advice, but more likely it's an opportunity to get them to help design their treatment, get them to help design what they would need and how sure. they would need it. And, and if you have that connection and trust, then you can actually call them when on it when they say something that doesn't make sense. Sure. I mean, um, yep, that all makes sense. I mean, my that probably wasn't where you were going at all, was it? Well, I mean, you, you go where you go, I'll go where <laughs> I go. Um, I mean, where I would say it's somewhat problematic is that if, if, if the person in front of you thinks they know more than you or you've gotten to the point where they've lost respect for you for one any reason, then I think that that makes that therapeutic journey much more challenging. And, and uh, you know, it, and... You know, this is like if, if, if everything was going, you know, if you're, if you, I wouldn't say this, but if you got everything together in such a way that you know more than I do and you've got all this, then why are you here and I'm here, <laughs> right? And, you know, and if you don't, if, if you don't need our help, then, you know, then that's fine. 
Yeah. Yeah. So let's get to the next one, which is a little bit more of a controversial point or an interesting science type point, which is uh, um, he's going to be talking about uh, a medication that's near and dear to your heart, phenobarbital. And um, whether or not this uh, is uh, he, he had phenobarbital uh, administered to him as a as an infant and as a as a newborn who was colicky. And uh, one of his theories is that this led to um, a lifelong uh, difficulty with sleep. Yeah. So let's play that now. I mean, prescribing a major barbiturate for a child that's barely born and won't stop crying. So, so in general, so phenobarbital is a uh, barbiturate. Uh, it works on the GABA and the uh, similar receptors to uh, to benzos. Um, it is used as an anti-seizure uh, uh, medication, uh, and uh, historically was sometimes used as a sedative uh, hypnotic. Although, because of the unpredictability in how the body uh, processes it, you know, the same dose can be processed differently, different times, and different side effects. Uh, they moved away from that to benzodiazepines uh, later on. The, the real value, it has a very, very long half-life. And so in a lot of the uh, residential treatment centers, when they detox people, phenobarbital is probably the one that they use for or they used to use for the multi-substances, right? So when someone's using five, six, seven uh, different uh, things, uh, a phenobarbital uh, uh, detox uh, really allows to them to get out of the system. They don't have a seizure, uh, all that uh, kind of stuff. It's used in kids as well, right? And so it's used uh, for uh, neonates, you know, uh, when they're when they're born, uh, sometimes to uh, if there's some risk of some withdrawal or uh, colicky kind of thing. His was interesting because uh, it uh, it occurred on day like I don't know like two to six weeks or something like that. Yes. Uh, and uh, and he describes where they almost had videos where he looked almost intoxicated or uh, drunk and everyone was sort of laughing in uh, some way. I mean he's right in what he says is that there's these uh, windows right so there's these windows in development where uh, different skills are uh, developed at different uh, different uh, stages. Yeah, and I, you know, from my perspective, I, I, I don't have the, the science background that you do, but, uh, you know, from a common sense perspective, it kind of has a bit of a point here. I mean, it's a pretty powerful medication. You're giving it to some yeah. you know, baby that's three weeks old. I know, yeah. you know, it's... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I don't think they do it uh, anymore. Like, uh, I don't think it's, it's not on the All list right. of uh, colicky baby medications, you know, and uh, okay. I don't know how common it was uh, back uh, back then. Thank you very much for that. That's great. Um, so the next one we're talking about is his introduction to pills. So um, just to get some context on this, he's filming uh, Fools Rush In, I believe, and he's on a break in between the filming. Uh, I think the movie's with Selma Hayek, and um, and in in he has a, he's on a jet ski, and there's a, there's an accident on the jet ski. He has a, an injury. I don't know how significant the injury is, but there's a, a painful injury, and he, he needs to film an important scene. So they bring in a set doctor, and um, uh, and they offer him a pill, and uh, the pill happens to be Vicodin, and this is his first Vicodin. So um, this is a little clip about that. Called the doctor who came to my trailer and handed me a single pill in a plastic package. Take this when you're done, the doctor said. Everything will be fine. I stashed that pill in my pocket, and I swear to God, I think if I'd never taken it, none of the next three decades would have gone the way they did. Within 18 months, he's at 55 Vicodin per day. And um, I think he goes on to describe a scenario where he felt it was his connection to God. Um, the pill made yeah. him feel that good. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. I think it was warm honey going yeah. through his veins. No, this is this is a really sad uh part of the uh, story for me and uh, there, there's a lot of people that unfortunately went through that 
Um, opiates uh, for some people, uh, I mean, he describes it as warm, uh, warm honey. Uh, some some people they just get such a sense of peace, you know, and uh, calm with it. It's like all the uh, trauma and stuff disappears for a moment. Um, you know, uh, it's more common in people that have been abused early in uh, in life. You know, and uh, back when we used to scru- prescribe meds for pain, and there was a signal, oh, maybe there, there's an addiction coming. Uh, they they had a, a risk tool they used to use, right? And uh, uh, if uh, if you have a family history, I think of a mental illness, if you have a personal history of sexual abuse, like it makes you very vulnerable uh, to developing addiction to opiates. And while some people, you know, they they take the opiate and then they get nausea and they feel sick and all that stuff, uh, other people they they're in peace and calm. I mean, there's a scene in Basketball Diaries with Leonardo DiCaprio that uh, has just stayed me through. Like, there's a scene where he's like screaming and like crying and upset. And there's a screen where he uses and all of a sudden there's like peace and, uh, and calm. And, and, and it's one of those things. I mean, before this, uh, you know, um, it was mainly alcohol. And I just, uh, yeah, it's, it's so sad because uh, like even though it, it happens to some people, it happens to some people, they have that one pill and then all of a sudden they experience something and they're just constantly trying to, uh, trying to get it again, right? To fill whatever that, uh, that, void, uh, that void is. Uh, and, um, and unfortunately, you know, one of the unintended consequences of uh, making pain the sixth vital sign, uh, the consequence of trying to treat somebody's physical pain was that we had a larger subset than we thought, you know, I say we, but I mean the medical profession as a whole, who just got dependent on these uh, pills. And then it was the only thing that could give them the, the emotional uh, relief. Yeah. And, and and I think, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that people can get some of that relief from real life, but it, it doesn't happen that immediately and quickly. Right. And so, yeah, that, that's all. It's just a sad. I mean, the whole iatrogenic um, uh, addictions that were caused by doctors giving pain meds uh, is uh, very uh, upsetting to me. And, and I worry constantly that is there something else that we're doing that's going to have that kind of harm on society as a whole? Yeah, me too. Yeah, I worry a lot about that. Um, and I think that's, you know, so as uh, I think the story went, um, and uh, forgive me if I get any of the details wrong here, but I think he he called back the doctor and said, this is perfect. He didn't tell the doctor it was a godlike experience, but yeah. this is perfect for my pain. Yeah. By the next morning, there was 40 Vicodin delivered yeah. to his hotel room. And, and, and there you go, right? And yeah. now, would that 40 Vicodin have been delivered to his hotel room if, um, if it was one of our patients? Well, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I never prescribed a Vicodin. I wasn't around at that uh, time. There's, um, but I mean, I did we have Vicodin Canada? We didn't have Vicodin Canada, but it's a similar medic. Let's you know, let's just call it the the equivalent of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you know when when you have funds, you get uh, better care. Better. And, and well, maybe maybe not in this case. I don't know, but it's. Uh, I mean, it. If you think better from a pain perspective, somebody has pain. Uh, he had some injury. The medication worked. It's not unreasonable to give it a little bit more. Forty. And uh, you can't predict when um, an addiction is going to take off. And in fact, you know, in the early 2000s, there was tons of papers saying that if you have a legitimate pain condition, you won't get addicted to opiates. There was tons of papers saying that. And, you know, it was just, uh, and, and what are you supposed to do as somebody who's, you're trying to follow the guidelines, you're trying to follow the practice. In, in Ontario in the 90s, I think, in early, t- you would get in trouble for under-treating somebody's pain. Yeah. You would get in trouble for that, right? All right. So I'm I'm sorry I'm going to keep holding yeah, you keep to get, going, yeah. get get an answer on this though. It's like so 40 40 is a reasonable number. Yeah, I mean I don't remember what injury he had. He it was something he where fell he off had his jet ski fell accident. off his jet ski. One gave him relief. 
did he need to get 40 in this as a, as the follow-up script I mean now he wouldn't get that much okay well I I don't I don't have a problem saying that to me it sounds like it's a it, it was an overly generous script yeah. you know it was it was there was some risk involved in the script yeah, so. All right. So uh, the next one is is very much in, in our addiction medicine wheelhouse yeah. here. Yeah. So uh, and this is a, a somewhat controversial uh, statement that he's making. He's talking about uh, buprenorphine. It's a partial opiate uh, agonist, and what makes it really, really special is that it's hard to overdose on it. It binds super, super tight to the receptor, so it knocks the other stuff off. Uh, it binds super, super tight, and it lasts for a really, really long time. And it's got a ceiling effect for respiratory depression. So say if I'm sitting here. And I take 1, 2, 10, 50 morphines, I'll stop breathing. But if I take 1, 2, 10 buprenorphines, my breathing rate will lower, but it won't, uh, won't, won't stop. Yeah. And, and uh, this is a different time than when he was taking it. But now we love it when people are on this medication because they're very unlikely to die from an opiate overdose right. when they're on it. So where it's somewhat controversial is he sees this medication as what he calls a detox medication. Yeah. Uh, he makes a, a further statement, says nobody should be on this medication for more than seven days. Yep. And uh, this is controversial because yep. we have patients that have been on this medication for years and years yeah. and, and, and alive. And, yeah. and, and, and doing well. But he brings up some very valid points, right? So he's, he says that this impacts his, uh, you know, kind of him, his, his being, right? It doesn't, it's not a good life. He says it's the hardest thing to get off of. The World Health Organization, the Canadian, the American Society of Addiction Medicine are very clear that detoxification is not treatment for it. In fact, it's contraindicated. So what does that mean? That means that if you have an opiate use disorder, going into detox and getting opi- off of opiates is not best medical practice. But but why would they say that, right? Because we always talk about detox, detox. We talk about that as part of the, the addiction treatment. And what happens with people who use opiates is that about 80 to 90% within one month will relapse, above 90% over the course of six months or a year. And then what happens to people is that they, they lose tolerance and then they'll go back and use um, maybe a similar amount, you know, and maybe they'll use alone, and then they'll they'll die, right? Because their body's not uh, not used to it. And so we really recommend opiate agonist uh, treatment, right? So methadone, buprenorphine in Canada, we use something called uh, SROM, slow release oral morphine. It's illegal to use that in the states uh, due to the uh, drug uh, regulations for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, with, uh, with, with buprenorphine, in fact, when I started practice here, there were a lot of treatment programs that would not take people on buprenorphine. What he describes is his experience, right, around feeling empty uh, or um, uh, dead, dead inside. Uh, that's not the experience I've heard with, uh, with buprenorphine. Uh, and uh, uh, I mean, we might have to get some uh, papers to hear patients' uh, narrative uh, on it. Um, but but I hear very different stories uh, on it, and usually when when somebody feels uh, dead, you know, uh, on it, uh, I have to unpack that quite a bit to really figure out in the narrative what's what's actually going on. Uh, what would be the addiction medicine treatment? What would be the psychiatric treatment? What would be the psychotherapy treatment? What would be the behavioral treatment? Okay, so here is the quote for the uh, his uh, buprenorphine. But I felt nothing. I couldn't tell if that was because of the opioid buprenorphine I was taking or if I was just generally dead inside. Buprenorphine, for the record, is a detox med and an excellent one and is designed to help you stay off other stronger opiates. It does not alter you in any way. But ironically, it's the hardest drug to come off in the entire world. 
uh, so this next quote is about uh, which you brought forward, talking about uh, smoking and um, having uh, you know wanting to break his record of fifteen days. So that's number uh, five. I had a record I had to break, fifteen days, and with that would come the cooling comfort of not wanting to smoke. I've been there before. I could do it again. The complete rebuilding of a man. So the reason uh, the reason I picked this quote is that you know a lot of people don't know this, but uh, smoking is probably the most uh, addictive uh, drug. Uh, about uh, one in three people who smoke uh, do become addicted. I think with uh, heroin, it's something like uh, one in four. Uh, with alcohol, maybe eight to ten percent. Same thing with uh, with cannabis, and uh, smoking is probably the most addictive uh, drug. And the other reason that, that I liked it uh, was that uh, he talked about in the paragraph uh, after that one about um, how he's much kinder to himself after those uh, 15 days. He uh, stopped being so self-critical, stopped being so judgmental, and uh, it really allowed him to build himself up. Sadly, you know, when I was going through this book, uh, it was hard to find examples of resilience and strength. And nobody lives with an addiction as long as he has, you know, without having those uh, characteristics and traits. And, and I think that was where uh, he, maybe it was a mistake, he really slipped in a point where uh, he shows that there is some resilience and strength uh, in him. And I wish he allowed us to see more of that in his, uh, his, uh, his writing. I, I agree with you there. I thought there was very few, uh, um, even, you know, his, his honesty was, was, was it, it, it felt very self-deprecating and very he was very hard on himself and he has been through so much yeah and um he doesn't give himself any the credit that he needs to give himself and that's just my opinion of this but um and that wasn't was an opportunity to do it and and absolutely nicotine is 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 just this uh, almost impossible thing for for people to seem to move forward from right it's uh, it's the last thing people move forward from but in his case he needed to because it was um uh, i think it was an impedance to uh to other problems that he medical problems that he was having at the time all right so uh the next one is um again this is kind of tying into the money situation so um i believe he flew to switzerland for care um and um this is where he um it was in rehab in switzerland and uh was explaining to be in pain and was got up to 1800 milligrams a hydrocodone. A hydrocodone, which is uh, similar to a previous video that we did uh, talking about uh, tolerances. And, yeah. um, and in addition to the hydrocodone, he was also on, I think he was on some benzos as well. I'm not 100% sure of that, but he was yeah. definitely on a, on a ketamine. Yeah, they, they would give a little bit of a Ativan okay. when, when they did the infusions. Okay. And he felt it. Uh, right. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so this is, and then he was on the, the ketamine. Uh, ketamine infusions as well. So, um, uh, ketamine is a is uh, is is a drug that uh, I uh, have a lot of experience with personally. Um, not in the current context of how it's being uh, kind of rolled out across uh, across North America in various clinics right now. Yeah. Um, um, various psychiatry run clinics are are, are getting big in this yeah. for yeah. treatment resistant uh, depression, I believe. Yes. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And you know, and I hope uh, I hope it goes well for it. Uh, the data looks uh, good so far, but we'd argue it's still in the experimental uh, phase. Um, it makes me wonder, you know, uh, their protocol in uh, Switzerland, the rationale, because the way he describes it, it was almost like a mental break from himself. You know, he would go there. Uh, you'd have the ketamine uh, and the hydrocodone. It was interesting. Uh, one of the stories involved um, him being in Switzerland coming back to California to see his doctor. And he was told in Switzerland the doctor would just continue the 1,800 um, milligrams of hydrocodone. 
And uh, the new doctor said, no, I don't do that. You're getting 30. And then immediately spent 175K, flew back to Switzerland to get his uh, hydrocodone and his, uh, his uh, ketamine uh, infusion again. Yeah. So he's on, he's in treatment at a, it has a private chef. Um, and um, there's no other, um, no other um, kind of uh, co uh, co clients in the in the treatment center in Switzerland. I understand, and um, and he's on eighteen hundred milligrams of hydrocodone. He's on uh, you know a ketamine infusion, and he's on a benzo uh, a benzo as well occasionally. Wow, and uh, I can't see a scenario where one of our clients' patients would ever have the ability to have that. Well, it was, well it's not even necessarily about the, the ability. Uh, I mean, in all the exams that I've taken, uh, I've never seen that as a, a treatment uh, option. Uh, some people uh, believe it's the um, ketamine itself that helps with the treatment-resistant depression. Maybe they were using those protocols there. The way he described it, it didn't sound like it. You know that they were using those uh, those protocols, and and you know let's see let's see what happens. I think there's a lot of promise and hope for the ketamine assisted psychotherapy ketamine uh, sure. treatment for. And 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 uh, I'm probably not as generous to your uh, to the medical colleagues, your medical colleagues in Switzerland. I, I would suggest that probably that wasn't exactly the best care. Yeah, like and, and that's this okay. Is where, you don't need to have no, an opinion no, on no, that. No, 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 but fine. no, but like when people have unlimited means, right? Like no, when when you have unlimited means, like everyone's gonna, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it. It's yeah. almost like a, even if uh, as a therapist, right? If I've got a patient that's coming in a couple of times a week, but they're not getting better, it's subconsciously or unconscious. It's it's in my benefit to have them keep coming in, right? Like it's of uh, course it's a form of income. It's a form of all that stuff, and it's a tough. Um, I don't know. I but don't there, know but there's, there's no evidence to suggest that you're not going to break through on the second uh, week or the third week or the fourth session or the seventh session. If, if you knew it was hopeless, you, I, I mean, I know because I've worked with you in a practice, there's, you know, you're not going to, uh, you know. You, you, I, I haven't seen the randomized controlled trial where a flight to Switzerland and getting infused with ketamine hydrocodone because you're unhappy at what your doctor prescribed is the best practice or, or treatment. All right, that's as close as, as close as we'll get. Yeah, that's okay. I, I just I, I hate. I don't want to. I want to give love to everyone. I don't want to give hate to, and stuff. Uh, but I, I truly believe the the wealthy uh, and uh, the people that we see get shitty addiction care. Hundred percent. Okay. Um, I, I'm I'm am le- less hateful of being critical. As yeah, maybe can that's tell. why we we work well together. <laughs> I can be like, ah, maybe maybe they were trying to help the pain. That's why they kept prescribing. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that. Yeah, definitely. All right. So um, uh, the the next one is uh, very much in 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 uh, in your particular wheelhouse because this is uh, he um, uh, attributes one of his, uh, if not his final um, sobriety, um, uh, to a therapist who um, tells him. That uh, to think of um, uh, next time you think of oxycotton, uh, think of um, having a colostomy bag for the rest of your life. So let's play that. One day, God and my therapist got together and decided to miraculously remove my desire to take drugs, a desire that's been plaguing me since 1996. My therapist said to me, The next time you think about oxycotton, I want you to think about living the rest of your days with a colostomy bag. So my question to you then is, is fear a, a good therapy tool? Is that, is that a long-lasting uh, 
evidence-based approach to getting people to stop using. Oh, I love how you focused me because I had like five stories that were loosely related to that that I wanted to share. Uh, I was gonna, I was gonna talk about uh, your your moment of uh, recovery. I was gonna talk about how uh, sometimes uh, it's not what's said, but there's sometimes the message is delivered in such a way where it's like it just hits you. It just hits you, and then it's not something new, but it just hits you in a way where bam, it's time to make a difference. The psychological literature is, is uh, I believe, is really clear about this. And I think fear is a phenomenal short-term motivator. I don't know what short-term means. A day, week, a month, a year, five years, ten years. But if you want sustainable change, mm-hmm. you're going to need a long-term vision that you're moving towards. Yes. And a psycholo- I was, so, for example, you know, somebody has a seizure, they're withdrawing from alcohol. Uh, somebody uh, has a situation where they black out and do something that they regret. Uh, you usually for a certain period of time, they're able to not even think about it. It's, it's what, what is that like college a stereotype? You know where you you people get drunk and they're puking. Oh, I'm never going to drink again, right? Yes. And then maybe they don't drink for a day, maybe they drink for a week, maybe they drink for a month. Yeah. But then there's like one thing. Oh, maybe maybe I can have a bit, right? And so the shittier thing that happens, probably. I mean, I mean, I'm generalizing here. Chances are it's it's going to be a long time that people uh, avoid something. You know. Uh, and for him, you know, uh, he's he's so lucky to be alive. You know, uh, the the rupture that he had kills most people. He just have to be at the the right place, you know, uh, for it. Um, in the long run, as human beings, you know, because I, you know, now that we have a podcast that has what <laughs> five hundred subscribers and one video that has forty thousand views, uh, I was looking at these podcasts and how they evolve and develop. So they'll have a topic, then they'll go on to something else, and they'll, they'll depend on what their audience wants, right? But eventually, they're all about self-improvement. That's what it goes like, how to be better, how to get better, how to help people get better. And and it fits perfectly with this because in the long run, you need something you're moving towards. You need something meaningful, something that gets you up, gets you going, all that kind of stuff. If your sober day, if your day without drugs is not more rewarding than the time that you use, you're going to be at risk for going back. You're going to be at risk going back for that, right? Because I believe the fear only lasts for so long. But although... For some people, if you're last a really long time, it, 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 can can. Last, it can last a lifetime even. You can be scared of a lot of things. Um, as someone who's been in an ICU eight times, uh, uh, death was, was, was an, uh, it, not something that I was scared of. It was, it, was, it was not about if I would die from this, it's just when I would die from this, right? It was, mm. There was no question about it because I mm. never thought of a time. I'm not, my journey was completely different than Matthew Perry's. I never with I never came down from these drugs. I never stopped. I did it every day. I didn't yep. have any any false starts. I didn't have yep. any any you didn't have, you didn't have any um, any uh, detoxes, addiction any, treatment. Any, you didn't addiction, have any uh, traditional addiction uh, treatment. Any addiction treatment at all. Yep. But and you know, but when I did stop, you know, what needed to happen at that time was the underlying problems that was creating the need for me to use these substances needed to be addressed mm. and if it wasn't starting to get addressed there's there was it was inevitable that I would use again because but at the same time I did have somebody I did have a caseworker helping me get housing I did have somebody helping me get legal aid helping me you know get back on my feet helping me with ever with the unmet needs in my life and if that didn't happen then I'm 100% certain that the 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 the, the Sobriety would have been short-lived. Yeah, so so the, the, there's three things now, right? There, there's the fear of the horrible thing that yes. you don't want to happen again or you don't want it to get to that point or you never, never want to be in that situation. There's where we're moving towards and what you said was the how you get there. 
yeah. right? Because uh, sometimes we know the steps, but we just can't do them. We need someone to be there with us, right? Yeah. And so th- there's the steps how to get there. Yes. The the other thing that, that I wanted to bring up that, that he brought up a couple of times, which I think he was very fortunate for, uh, there was something in his story where he decided early on that he would never do heroin. Yes. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful that he never did heroin. Yeah. Right. I'm grateful because uh, that that show brought so much joy to so many people, and I'm sure even though he doesn't share it in his stories, I'm sure his existence brings joy to so many people uh, that are that are there. Uh, and um, and the way that his brain responded to the Vicodin, I don't think he would have had a chance if the heroin had. Sure. Right. So good for good for him in terms of having that one yeah. principle that he uh, made sure he never got by. You know, because uh, uh, yeah. So I think it's it's uh, if 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 it's. C- coming down to two words it's fear is okay and fear and hope right so if there's no hope yeah yeah, there's got to be hope right you got to if there isn't hope i don't i don't know what would stop somebody from regressing back i i I just don't know like i i I don't know of anyone that's been successful at it that has no hope for moving forward yeah and and that's why i I think i think some of the the things that uh he's uh, said you know might be might be true uh, and and I wonder if they're they're helpful or not, right? And maybe there's a way to find a truth that's also helpful. So, for example, if if you go into a treatment center believing that you know more than everyone, right, that there's nothing you can can get out of it, uh, where, where's the hope in that, right? If you believe that your brain is broken yep. and there's no chance to get, like, where's the hope in that? And exactly. so, so, yeah. so we and, and and there's therapies that do this. There's therapies that help us come up with beliefs that are still authentic and accurate but also helpful. Okay, so the last quote here is going to be, uh, you know, probably more uh, controversial than, than most. And so uh, you're going to get no opinion from me or you'll get a weird <laughs> opinion that everyone's going to be upset by. Let's Just, see. Oh, okay. Here we go. You ready? Yeah. Most of these places are pieces of shit anyway. They're hell-bent on taking advantage of sick, needy people and cashing paychecks. The whole system is corrupt and completely fucked up. Take it from me. I'm an expert. I poured millions of dollars into this system did the money help me or hurt me in my opinion it's just my opinion there is there's a money driven element to care um and um and i would imagine that the person with the most money (laughs) would not do the best and that's sad right um in this in this field i'm sure uh, notwithstanding let's say he had maybe heart disease or cancer or something then then that that would be you know perhaps different but in this uh, this particular uh, type of thing that we work in here, this addiction stuff, this money is uh, could be a curse. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I just uh, the the whole idea that uh, when you're unhappy with what a doctor prescribes, you could take a private jet immediately to Switzerland and get whatever med you want. Yeah, like like just that that ability shows that maybe the money wasn't the best uh, thing, you know, no. uh, for him to have that uh, unlimited uh, supply. But I don't I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no problem saying that money has, uh, you know, whether the, I'm not going to say that, that the system is, is corrupt and it's at its core, but I'm going to say that, you know, I, I have no problem from what I've read, from what he, he shares, if, if, if the, uh, and I take him on his word here, um, that, uh, you know, money has corrupted his care. And, um, you know, this, the, you know, you just have to look at the Switzerland example, right? There's no, you know, everything else, maybe other things are murky, of course, you know, and, and we're getting, again, we're getting one side of this, of course, right? But if, if, if the facts are as he represented it, I be, it's my personal belief that, uh, that uh, money was not his friend and uh, in this situation. And, um, and, uh, and I, you know, I feel, uh, you know, I feel I, 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 I feel bad for the guy, I and feel, uh, feel so bad. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it, it is a sad story. It, was hard and to go through, yeah. I mean, um, 
I, and, and, you know, and just not, not, not that he's listening, but, uh, you know, I, I just want to thank him for being so brave yeah. to put this forward because this yeah. is not something that, you know, as, yeah. as somebody who tells, you know, I'm in the addiction world, this is what I do for a living. And, and I struggle, uh, still struggle with, with telling my story at times. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a movie star. I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, Chandler. And, uh, you know, I, um, you know, and it's, uh, so what he did is very brave and what he continues to do is very brave. Very so, brave, uh, and, yeah. uh, so I think that, uh, needs to be commended all by itself because he's, uh, you know, he's, he's certainly wearing this, uh, and, and he doesn't need to do this, right. He doesn't need to, no. he didn't need to write this book at no, all. So, and, uh, so I'm, I'm glad that he did and, um, and I'm uh, glad you uh, joined us and, um, and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's all I got on this. Yeah, no, I I don't have much to add, but I feel the, the same way, the, the amount of courage it took to put something like that out there, uh, to be uh, vulnerable, knowing that people are going to perceive different statements in uh, different ways, you know, uh, yeah. and uh, and this is somebody that uh, strives for excellence, right? Uh, and to put that, uh, the flaw right there that everybody sees uh, first is quite a, a thing. I hope he's able to find the love and uh, care and uh, the support uh, uh, that, that he uh, needs, and hopefully someday he uh, sees... So hopefully someday he sees the impact he's had on others, you know, because uh, yeah. it's uh, brought so much joy into so many people's uh, lives, you know, with the, the shows and stuff that he's done. So, 100%. Okay, thank, thank you. you. What time is it? Oh.